Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to hear your word, which is God-breathed, which is living and active, which is given for our good, which is pure, and which is as sweet as honey. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would just give us ears and minds to receive your word. Remove from us distractions, remove from us lists, remove from us all of the tasks in front of us so that we may soak on your word. And I pray, Heavenly Father, as your pastor here today, that you would make my speech pure and clear. Father, that you would make me a vessel for your message. I pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so one more thing that I want to draw your attention to. The scripture insert has at the bottom an outline for today's sermon, and it also has some blanks to encourage you to follow along. We're doing this because I think that this sort of thing uh, can help us remember and retain the sermon. It allows us to review it uh, in the coming days or weeks. And it also gives you the benefit of knowing how close I am to being done, if you're following along, which will help you schedule lunch a little more accurately. So please, if you, if you would, get in the habit of doing that. We'll provide that going forward, uh, because I do think it is a value to, to grasping God's Word. All right, well, today is the beginning of my first series here at River Community Church. And as the beginning, as the first series, I want to focus on the gospel that I am here to preach. I believe as a pastor of Christ's church, it is my primary duty to preach, to teach, and to apply the gospel to all the people in my charge. I believe my calling as a shepherd is to feed my people the gospel, to protect my people from false gospels, and to lead them in greater trust and obedience to the gospel. So what is the gospel that I preach? Here it is in a nutshell. I preach that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in accordance with the scriptures alone, and all to the glory of God alone. That is my gospel. And that gospel should be familiar to all of us who are in the evangelical, Protestant, and Reformed tradition because that is what is called the five solas of the Reformation. Those five alone statements were what were rediscovered through the work of people like Martin Luther and John Calvin nearly 500 years ago as they realized that the gospel had lost its fo- that the catholic church had lost its focus but i use the word carefully they rediscovered these doctrines they were not invented they come straight from the biblical gospel and one of the reasons if you open your bulletin that we used 1 corinthians chapter 15 for our uh reading of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is because I want you to see that these five solas come straight from the Bible. And I wanted to pick 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because 
Many historians believe that the text here is probably the earliest written text in the New Testament era. This was the first gospel tract that all of the apostles came to and said, this is what we pass on to people. You can see that in the very first sentence where it said, I delivered what I also received to you, uh, received. That's Paul speaking. He said, this is the gospel that I was delivered, and this is the gospel that I pass on. It is a gospel tract. And if you follow the history, Paul's conversion was probably within five years of the resurrection of Christ. So if he received this information, this gospel tract was handed to him at his conversion, then we are looking at the testimony of the church that dates within just a few years of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And I want you to see that in this very earliest text, the five solas that were rediscovered in the Reformation are clearly present. First, notice in that text, it says, of first importance. This is the most important thing that all of the apostles agreed on. It is early, it is foundational, it is essential. We see Christ alone presented in here, where it says, Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised, he appeared. We see in this, in this uh, short tract that Jesus Christ is the one and only Savior and mediator between God and all humanity. We see Scripture alone. Paul says twice that this gospel, that these, that the, these events of Christ are in accordance with the Scriptures. Scripture alone means that the Scriptures are the highest and final authority of all belief and practice. We see faith alone. At the very uh, last thing he says, so we preach and so you believe. Faith alone means that we are saved by our faith in Christ alone not by our works. We see that the uh, gospel is by grace alone. Paul confesses, it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. Grace alone means that all that we have, all of our salvation from beginning to end, is a gift from God, which we do not merit or earn. And finally, we recognize that the gospel is to the glory of God alone. Later in the same chapter, Paul describes all of this and sums it up by saying that God may be all in all. Glory to God alone means that the gospel gives us, gives all the glory to God alone. So I show that to you so that you know that when we talk about the reformers and the reformation, we are talking about what they did in bringing us back to the gospel. And it begs the question for us today, why did these doctrines need to be rediscovered if they were so foundational, so primary, and so essential? Well, it's a long story, and I don't intend to to give it to you, but basically, the Roman Catholic Church saw over centuries of neglect and over giving emphasis to, to thoughts that were either unbiblical or barely biblical, that the gospel faded from view that these doctrines became neglected and fell away from what was central to the church. Now, this is not simply a history lesson, because I believe that when we recognize what the Reformers had to do, had to restore the gospel to the church, that it reminds us that the church has a serious tendency within it. There is a warning to us from the Reformation, and that is this, the church has the ability even the tendency to move away from the gospel, to forget the gospel, to lose the gospel. I'm sure you are all familiar with churches 
who seem to be more about a set of morals or about a various cause or about good works or about a political platform or about other noble things. Slowly, gradually, a church can move from preaching the gospel to focusing on other good things. It is almost within our nature to move from the gospel. Uh, a, a very uh, recent example for me, as uh, we had to move and all the things that we had to figure out in moving, uh, Becky reminded me that we had a YMCA uh, gym membership. Because I skipped a few days, it was a bit of a reminder that, um, that we do have a gym membership. Um, but the YMCA is the gym. It's also the Young Men's Christian Association. And it is interesting to read a little of their history that as late as the 1930s, the YMCA was about promoting evangelical Christianity in weekday and Sunday services while promoting good sportsmanship and athletic contests in gyms. They had as their priority evangelical Christianity. And yet I can tell you as a semi-regular or informal or irregular member of that gym that I was never confronted with the gospel, but they had state-of-the-art gym equipment, which other people enjoyed using. The point of the matter is less than 100 years have passed, and the YMCA's mission is now inspiring youths and their families to exercise and be healthy. The gospel has completely fallen away. So why do we need to focus on the solas? Because that is a always present danger. We are calling this series First Things because we need to be clear about our identity and our mission at River. We are first and foremost to be gospel-centered in our identity. We are first and foremost to be about witnessing to that gospel in our community. The image that I have uh, come up with for this um, series is to evoke the image of a constitution, to evoke the image of a founding document, because that is what this series is meant to do. We must constantly measure ourselves, our preaching, and our ministry against whether or not we are faithful to the articles of the five solas. And so I want you to hear me. If I move away from this gospel, if I go soft, if I do not preach this boldly and clearly and consistently, call me out. Okay? I have gone unconstitutional. And I expect your rebuke. Okay? So today we are going to start with Christ alone. We could start with any one of them, but I think Christ alone is a great beginning because the solas center on the gospel and the gospel centers on Christ. When we confess Christ alone, we are confessing two essential truths. That Christ alone is necessary for our salvation And two, that Christ alone is sufficient for our salvation. This truth is clearly taught in our passage today. Uh, Paul was writing to the church in Colossae. 
and he was writing to them with, uh, with news that there had been several philosophies and practices that had started to kind of stick on to the gospel message. And so you had uh, ideas of asceticism, of not eating, of not drinking. You had ideas of hyper-spirituality, of communing with angels. You had uh, odd philosophies that were being mixed into the gospel story. And so as you read the Church of Colossae and you see what they were dealing with, in some ways you could see that they were just like modern-day Americans because they had begun to lose sight of Christ alone. They were adding to the message various elements, spiritual practices that they thought helped the gospel. And in the end, these things began to compete with Christ or were augmenting Christ or minimizing Christ. In short, the Colossians were trying to fit Christ into the way of the world around them. And I think in that respect, we all struggle with what uh, the Colossians struggled with. Because do we all deal with the pressure to fit Christ into the world around us? Do you struggle with trying to fit Christ into the workplace, into your politics, into your friendships, into your relationships, into your family life? And in reality, when we try to fit him in, what we're trying to do is to fit him into a way that doesn't make us too uncomfortable, that doesn't make us too unpopular, and that doesn't make us too much different from the rest of the world. Do you struggle with that temptation? That is what the Colossians were struggling with, and the name for this is syncretism. It is the practice of downplaying the exclusive claim of Christ to help us fit in with the world around us. Do you struggle with that in your life? I do. Our passage today was Paul's answer to these syncretistic tendencies. This is a a magisterial text. It is a hymn. It is packed with blow after blow about the true identity of who Christ is. In it, Paul undermines any attempt at syncretism by asserting the two truths of Christ alone, that Christ alone is necessary for salvation and that Christ alone is sufficient for salvation. So now I believe it is time for us to look at our text and see that first essential truth, that Christ alone is necessary for salvation. And you can follow with your handout if you wish. Paul gives us three reasons that we we must confess that Christ alone is necessary for salvation. By that I mean that there is no salvation that omits Christ. The first reason that Paul gives us is because of Christ's supremacy. Paul lists all these attributes of Christ, and together they should overwhelm us in showing us that there is no way that salvation could come through anyone else other than Christ. Let's look at these in detail. We are told that he is preeminent over all creation. Paul says in verse 15, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now the the title firstborn is a little bit foreign to us, Perhaps when we hear the word firstborn, we think of origin, we think of birth order. But in Paul's mind, in his his Jewish upbringing, firstborn was not strictly about birth order. It was about primacy. And the scriptures are have the habit of using the title firstborn to speak of the person who is preeminent. Look at Psalm 89, 27, which tells us this about David. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Or again, look at Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, 
where God says of, his, uh, of Israel, Israel is my firstborn son. In neither of those examples is the word firstborn meant to describe that this is the first in a series. Rather, it is meant to describe these as primary to God's heart, as most supreme, as most esteemed. And so when Paul is using it at Christ and calling him the firstborn of all creation, he is doing the same. He is saying Christ is above all creation. Christ is the inheritor of all creation. Moreover, we're told that he is the creator of all things. In verse 16a, by him all things were created. By Christ all things were created. Paul is taking what has been exclusively attributed to God and saying Christ also did that. In saying that, he is saying that Christ shares in the same divinity as God himself. Christ is God. Moreover, we are told in the next part of verse 16, he is the ruler over all things. Paul says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all governments are underneath Christ. There is nothing superior to his rule. He is the reason for all things. Verse 16c also, verse 16 also says, all things were created for him. For him. That's a startling thing. It tells us that the purpose of everything that exists is to serve Christ. It exists for him. Now that, that means several significant things, or at least one for the moment. Christ will be judging the fidelity of all things in their service to him. If all things are for him, then he is the one that determines whether they have served him well or not. It tells us that he is the judge. Moreover, we are told he is the sustainer of all things. In him, verse 17 says, all things hold together. That's an amazing statement. That means that every subsequent moment in creation relies on Christ's will to allow it. Everything is sustained. All things require Christ to be sovereign. As we look at these descriptions, they belong rightly only to God, and yet they are attributed to Christ, which is a full-throated confession that Christ is God. This all points to his necessity, because simply put, if he is supreme, if he is above all things, then any path to God must go through him. There is no bypass. Jesus says this even more simply in the Gospel of John when he told his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We can imagine that there are other valid ways to God or other valid ways to heaven if we believe Christ is one among peers But Paul makes it clear he stands above and sovereign over all. So if we are going to experience salvation, there is no way but through Christ. 
Next, we see that he is the head of all the redeemed, all who are saved. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church, the firstborn of the dead. The church is the beginning of the new creation, and that is where Christ is the head. He is both the source and the authority of the new creation, those who will be part of God's kingdom. He is the reconciler for all things. Verse 20 says, through him to reconcile to himself all things. There is no reconciliation. There is no way to God that does not go through Christ. Christ was required to reconcile all things. That means there is nothing in this creation that does not depend upon Christ's reconciliation. So, as it is popular in culture to speak of an image of salvation being like a mountain with many paths up, and some people might take the path of Buddha, some people might take the path of New Age belief, some people might take up the path of Islam, Paul absolutely destroys this image and makes it entirely invalid. Christ is not one way up the mountain. Christ is the mountain. Peter confessed this in front of the Jewish leadership when he said in Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So his his supremacy points to his necessity, but that's only the first of these three reasons. The second reason that he is necessary is because he died for sins. Christ died for sins. Verse 20b says that he made peace by the blood of his cross. That statement should scandalize us. That, that statement should shock us that this person whose glory was heaped up phrase after phrase after phrase, whose superiority and preeminence and altogether awesomeness was displayed phrase after phrase after phrase is then followed up with the shameful statement that he died on a cross. How do we put those two statements together? How does the most glorious one become the most despised one on a cross? Let me put it another way, or a couple other ways perhaps. The one who made the seas and the rivers cried for our sakes, I thirst. The one who said, let there be light hung in our place in the darkness of judgment. The one who is the author of life had to give up his spirit to redeem us from death. Here is the point. If Christ, who is so full of glory, had to die, then his death has to be necessary. Because if there was another way, then another way would have been given. But the most precious one had to give his life 
for salvation. Consider it from a yet another perspective. Think of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane the night he was arrested, where he prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Christ, the glorious one, the Son of God, is praying to his Father, who is joyous to answer all of his Son's prayers. He is praying to his Father where all things are possible. And Jesus says, if it is possible, take this cup from me. And the answer was no. There was no other way for salvation to be made to us than that his son took the cross. To imagine something else is to say that his father right here was deliberately cruel. And that is unimaginable. So if we recognize that this one had to die for our sins, does that not reveal the seriousness of our sins? Our sins are not mistakes. They are not goofs. They are not picadillos. They are things that require the blood of Christ, the most supreme and glorious and beautiful, to die on the cross. Does not the cross reveal so clearly our desperate condition as humanity? If the glorious one had to die on the cross, then that must mean that our sins have a most severe punishment. We cannot look at our sins lightly when we recognize that the cross was required to save us from them. How can we not be repulsed by our sins and driven to repentance by such a sacrifice? Is there any other appropriate response. I look at this and I say, what amazing grace. Not only does God desire to save us, but he willed to do so, knowing it required his own son to be sacrificed. Can we say to that God, why is there only one way? When the way that he provided cost him his son. We should be amazed that there is a way. That he provided a way that cost his son. What precious blood has purchased us. It is not because if it were not for God's son shedding his blood for our sins, then we would have no peace with God. We would have no hope. So my friends, let us not shrink from the necessity of Christ. For when we shrink from that, we are calling the blood of Jesus needless. The third reason that Paul gives us for the necessity of Christ is because the gospel of Christ must be preached everywhere. Verse 23 says, Paul describes this gospel he preaches to be proclaimed in all creation. This gospel must reach 
the whole creation. There isn't a single person, according to Paul, that does not need this gospel. We cannot go through our daily lives and say, this person's looking okay. I'll skip him for evangelism. The point of Paul is everybody must have the gospel. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Without Christ, the world perishes. There was a, a day a couple months ago when I was sitting in a Starbucks and uh, was working on uh, a lesson, and I had uh, this that my earphones in. I was not being social at all. And this uh, young woman who was quite, uh, quite beautiful talked to me with my headphones in. And so I had to take my headphones out, and she said to me, I've seen you here often. And I did the only thing that I knew to do as, as a man in that situation. I looked behind me, because somebody else is there that she's talking to. But it turns out it was actually, actually me. And the conversation turned to what I was doing. I had just been called to be the pastor, and so I, I shared that I'm coming down here to be a pastor. And so it turned to a spiritual conversation, and I asked her, where did she go? And she said, well, I'm having a really hard time to find a, a church. And I said, well, really, why? She said, well, I just, I just don't like the narrowness that Jesus is the only way. I just don't think that that's right. And it, it showed me in that moment that this is a truth that the world is going to fight against and is going to reject. And if we don't stand up for the necessity of Christ, then it will not be heard. We are the witnesses to this truth. The world meets the necessity of Christ in our witness. Do we make this Christ known? For the love of humanity, we must be bold about the necessity of Christ. All right, so that's essential truth number one of Christ alone. Christ alone is necessary for salvation. But also we must know the essential truth number two, that Christ alone is sufficient for salvation because he alone is the perfect mediator between God and humanity. And here we see that, that Christ fulfills perfectly the offices that we need to have a right relationship with God. We see, first of all, he is the perfect prophet who fully reveals God to us. Paul says in verse 15 that he is the image of the invisible God. By calling him the image of the invisible God, we go back to the image of Adam, and we see that Adam was created to be a reflector of God, and he failed when he sinned. But in Christ, that image of the invisible God is perfectly shined forth. As Hebrews tells us, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The idea is that Christ, as the perfect uh, reflection of the invisible God, the perfect image of the invisible God, he perfectly reveals God to us. You want to know God? You look to Christ. You want to know the will of God? You study Christ. And so Christ has come and his revelation has fulfilled all that we need to know God and to know how to live in this world that he has created. 
This is the word of Christ. We read this scripture, we follow this scripture because we hear the voice of Christ in it. We need to look no further for what does God want in our life than to know Christ's word given to us here in the scriptures. Second, he is the perfect priest able to restore us fully to God. We are told in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This tells us that not only was Christ fully divine, but also that he is the true and living temple between God and man. Perhaps you you go back to the, the book of Exodus, and the climax of that book tells us in verse 40, verse 34, that the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled in it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. But here we are told that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. He has become the new temple, the new place where God and man are able to meet and the new place where God and man are able to find atonement. As the sole mediator, Paul gives us all of the reasons he is the perfect atonement for us. In him we have complete forgiveness. Paul tells us we are redeemed, we are purchased. We have permanent peace by the blood of his cross. He has made peace. We have full reconciliation. Verse 22 tells us we have been reconciled, past tense. In him we are reconciled. His priestly work doesn't just give us the opportunity of salvation. His priestly work brings us all the way home. We are told in verse 22, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, he accomplished everything we need to stand in his presence. In Christ, we stand before God robed in righteousness and free from any condemnation. Our salvation is complete in him. Amen? Finally, he is the perfect king. We are told that he is the head of the church. Christ rules, leads, and cares for his people in this age and the next. He is the good shepherd, and in his hands we are safe and secure. And for now, I want to only stress one thing about his kingship. Christ is the prophet, the priest, and the king. If you have Christ, you have all three. You cannot receive Christ as Savior and not also have him as Lord. Christ's sufficiency means that we have all we need to know God's will, to be in relationship with him, and to be led by him in this life. Christ is sufficient. But I want to make that more personal. I was struck by a story that a, a pastor shared in a, in a um, magazine a couple months ago. He shared about a member in his church who was in his 70s or 80s, and his heart condition had gotten terminal so that he was in the last couple days of his life. And when the pastor visited him in the hospital, it was clear that this man was very burdened. This despite the fact that he had been a good member in this church. He had served as a Sunday school teacher. He had served in leadership. He had done many, many Christian things. And everybody would say, yeah, Chuck, he's a good Christian man. But as he was laying in his hospital bed with the days of his life almost gone, he was full of terror. He shared something that he had never shared with anyone else with the pastor. 
that he had served as a fighter pilot in the Second World War and that an event happened that made him so angry. He lost a friend that he signed up for extra bombing missions over Japan. He signed up not to win the war. He signed up to get as much blood as he could. And he was filled with rage, dropping bombs night after night, 75 missions, trying to satisfy his anger at the enemy. Civilians, children, wives. He did it all. And he realized when he got home that he had killed people and his conscience was convicted. He had killed hundreds, perhaps thousands And he had carried that burden his whole life. And finally, here at the last of his life, he shared that with his pastor, recognizing all he had to look forward to was judgment because he could not be forgiven for such a massive sin. And so the pastor tells us that he just turned to the the wall and pulled himself up into the fetal position. And the pastor sat there in silence for a while after listening to all of this. And he shared something that I want to share with you many times. He said, Chuck, you are a big sinner. But Jesus is a bigger Savior than you are a sinner. And when those words were spoken, Chuck changed. And he looked at the pastor and he said, you're right. Jesus is a bigger Savior than I am a sinner. And I want everyone here to know, whatever you have done, whatever you are afraid of, whatever you are hiding in your heart, Christ is a bigger Savior than you are a sinner. He is sufficient to forgive you of all that you have done and to bring you all the way home. Trust in him. So what do we confess when we confess Christ alone? We confess that Christ alone is necessary and sufficient for salvation. To put it a different way, you need Jesus. And once you have Jesus, you have all that you need. So I conclude with this question. Do you know him? Do you know him? Don't be quick to answer that question. Ponder it. There is no syncretism in such a relationship. As Paul states in our passage, to know him is to have a faith that is stable and steadfast and not shifting. Perhaps think back to the last week and the image of the gospel as a wedding. Knowing Christ is to know him closely and exclusively. For to know Christ is to know that he is incomparable and supreme. And to know that he is for you. He has come for you. He has bled for you. He has died for you. He has been raised for you. He reigns in heaven and keeps steadfast watch over you. It is to know that he is a bigger Savior than you are a sinner. When we know Jesus like that, the world becomes powerless to minimize him in our life. And we become unwilling to trade him away for anything. And that's a powerful testimony.
This sort of knowing must be renewed continually. And so whether you have never put your faith in Christ or whether you have been a Christian for decades, I exhort you all to know him better. I invite you to respond to these words of Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace, which is so amazing. That even though when we sinned and we rebelled and we rejected you, and even though that stirred up your rightful anger, your rightful wrath, and even though you knew that the only way to bring us sinners back to you was to offer up your perfect, beautiful, precious son, to die in our place, that you did that. And that Christ, knowing that to redeem his bride was going to require him to cry, I thirst, he did that. Father, I pray that today you would give this church great joy in knowing Christ alone and great boldness in sharing Christ alone who is necessary and sufficient. Father, let us all leave here as we consider our sinfulness knowing that as big of a sinner as we are, we have a bigger Savior in Christ Jesus. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus. And we pray as your Son taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.